Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Well, welcome back. Uh, so good that uh, you could join us. Uh, I'm honored to preach God's word to you. Pastor Dan's on vacation and uh, for some much-needed rest and rejuvenation. And uh, we're going to be in Esther chapter 4 this morning. And so if you want to grab a Bible, if you haven't already, you will need that uh, to follow along as we look to Esther. Uh, the page number, if you have a red Bible that you've gotten from the church, uh, that is page 411. 411, yeah, there it is on the screen. And we're going to be looking at uh, what is maybe uh, the most famous chapter, one of them in the book of Esther, this turning point that we see uh, from the story so far. Uh, And so what I'm going to do is actually begin by reading the entire story that we find in Esther chapter 4, and uh, then I will pray, and then we're going to enter into a time of thinking about what God has to tell us today. So we're going to look here to Esther chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. This is God's word for us today. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province... Wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days." 
And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will last forever. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you today asking for you by your spirit to help us understand these words. God, we cannot understand you or your ways without your spirit. And so we ask, Lord, be generous. We thank you that you have given us your spirit. And we thank you that through Christ, we can be reminded of your grace to us, reminded of the good news of the gospel, even in these words here. Father, we submit ourselves to your words and pray, would you be glorified as we hear them today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. As I was preparing uh, for this message today, I began thinking about some different positions, uh, different roles that I've held in my life. Uh, I remember one of the first jobs I ever had was a janitor at my church when I was 14. They, I don't know, they gave me a broom and said, just start sweeping things, start mopping things, and I did. Uh, later, I got to work at this, uh, it was sort of like a play funhouse with all these tubes that kids would crawl through in ball pits. I was the guy they gave to the, the spray and the rag, and they said, go and clean up whenever there's a mess in the tubes. That was my job there, my position. Later, I worked at Applebee's. I've, I've driven a, a delivery truck for pizza places. I've worked in a caregiving home before. Many, many different positions. I began thinking about where I am right now, how I came to be here in this position, you might say, in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And I began going back and tracing some of the steps that led here. You see, a few years ago, uh, five years ago, I was pastoring a church in Illinois, and I began speaking with someone in the PCA about planting a church in the PCA. God had put this idea of being a part of church plants and churches that plant churches on my heart, and so I began calling around and asking about this. Well, in the summer of 2016, after I had stepped down from pastoring down there in Illinois and was praying about what God had next, I went to this thing called the Church Planters Assessment. My wife Tara and I did, and it was in Atlanta, Georgia. And in Atlanta, Georgia, in July of 2016, when it was 100 degrees outside, I met this couple from Oshkosh, Wisconsin. That's kind of how she said it, Oshkosh. She said, we're from Oshkosh. And it was uh, the Golaxons. You may know the Golaxons. And they were going to plant a church in Oshkosh, Oshkosh, Wisconsin, well, fast forward about six months later, 
And my wife and I began looking for where God was going to take us, where he was going to lead us. And we began praying about a support role that I might serve in, one where I might be able to use my gifts in music and teaching and discipleship. And a month or so later, this position became available that we saw on a website in Green Bay, Wisconsin, to be an associate pastor at Jacob's Well Church. Well, I didn't know anything about Wisconsin or Northeast Wisconsin for that matter, so I called my northern friend from Oshkosh, Josh Golaxon, and I said, hey, do you know anything about this church, Jacob's Well? And this, I think, were his exact words. He said, dude, we're like a granddaughter church to Jacob's Well Church. We're planting from Emmaus Road, and they planted from Jacob's Well. Well, he put me in contact with Pastor Dan, and needless to say, the, the rest is history. Here I am. I want to think for a moment with you this morning about what positions or uh, position you hold right now. And I think in truth, all of us hold many different positions. Uh, You're either a parent or a child. You're a brother or a sister. You're a husband or a wife. You're single or married. Uh, You are a neighbor. Uh, You may be in charge of others or someone may be in charge of you. You may be an employer or you are an employee. All of us are in a position of some kind and Most of us are in more than one position. I'm curious, have you ever wondered, how did I get here? And why am I where I am in life? What's it all about? May I suggest to you, especially some of you who may be here today and you may be skeptical of Christianity, you may be skeptical of Christians, you may be skeptical of what the Bible has to say, and somewhere along the line, someone probably gave you a a decent reason to be skeptical. May I suggest to you today that the biblical worldview has the best answer to these big questions, where did I come from and why am I here? And I'd like to invite you today to maybe reconsider what the Bible has to say about these things. For some of you, maybe many of you today, these these are questions that you already know the Bible has the answer to, and so I'm going to invite you to reconsider your thoughts about the answer to those questions. And I'd like to suggest to you today that you have come into your position or positions in this world for such a time as this. You see, in our passage this morning, we find various people in various roles or positions. Let's let's look at some of the characters we find. We find Mordecai. uh, He's Esther's cousin. He uh, essentially adopted her, raised her. He's also called in chapter 2 a king's servant. He sat at the king's gate. He was some sort of official in the king's court. We don't exactly know what his job was, but we know he was there. He is an enemy of Haman. That much has been established. He did not bow down to Haman, the second most powerful man in the kingdom. He saved the king from a conspiracy plot, which was recorded in the book of Chronicles. We're told of this in chapter 2. And he was connected to Esther. He was in a position to influence her. And as we saw earlier in the book, he did influence her. We secondly see the character, the Jews, in every province. This is from, if modern day, India to Ethiopia. That's the kingdom of Persia. And we have these Jews who are in exile. They have not gone back with the others to uh, Jerusalem to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple there. They are in a position of exile. They are in an oppressed position, you might say. They are to live by another kingdom's laws. Then we find Esther. 
Esther, as I mentioned, raised by Mordecai. He was commanded by Mordecai to hide her Jewishness, her Jewish identity from the king and from the court. Interestingly now, it's been five years since she married King Ahasuerus. She was now isolated from her community. She was isolated really from the entire community, kind of holed up in this harem. She lived in a position of relative safety, luxury, and ease. And as we're told, she hasn't been in the king's presence for 30 days. We also find this guy, Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs. He had been assigned to Esther. He was part of the king's court. And he served sort of as, uh, if you will, he was the modern-day instant messenger. He just went back and forth between Esther and Mordecai taking messages. He must have had a couple with him because it's a couple times there's the plural. He was in a position of involuntary service. He did not choose to be there. He was in a position where he had to deny his own personal desires and wishes in order to serve the king and his court. And he was only able to serve in that position. You see, when we consider these various people and their various positions, we can begin to see a variety of temptations and pressures that they faced. Think about it with me. Mordecai was tempted to use his position of influence in Esther's life to control and manipulate her, and he did. The Jews were tempted to see their position and fall into despair and hopelessness. They were tempted to see, perhaps, that they were insignificant. What difference could they really make? And Esther, well, she faced great temptation and pressure. Pressure to keep her identity hidden. Pressure she gave into. Temptation to see that she now is insignificant. She doesn't matter. She's kind of just held up here. She doesn't even see the king anymore. What influence does she have? Maybe even the temptation to protect this position by playing it safe, keeping her head down and remaining ignorant of the world around her. You see, we face similar temptations and pressures, and it makes sense then in light of these, that we too would be tempted to see our positions in this world as maybe insignificant, as maybe without purpose. Maybe we are tempted to play it safe, to stay in the sidelines, to be silent about the things going on around us. And so I'd like us to consider this question. This is a big question for us this morning. In times like these, How are followers of Jesus meant to live in light of your position in this world? How are followers of Jesus meant to live in light of your position in this world? How are you meant to live in light of where you are? Look with me at verse 1, and what we see first here is that Mordecai learns all that had been done. And to get that context, you have to go back to chapter 3, and you find in Uh, Chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, a a good summary of what happens. Essentially, Haman, the second most powerful man in the kingdom of Persia, had just convinced King Ahasuerus to allow Haman, to allow him to enact genocide on the Jewish people because he had a grudge to vet out with Mordecai. And so he passes into law an edict Verse 13 of chapter 3 says this, letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces, that's from India to Ethiopia, with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day. I just want you to sit with that for a moment. 
to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews in the entire province, young and old, women and children, in one day. Total genocide. And this was to happen about a year from now, from the time this was written. And we find in Esther 3 then that a copy of the document was issued in every province by proclamation so that all the peoples would be ready. Essentially what they were being told is, you who are not Jewish, you can take up arms and you can kill and destroy all of the Jews around you. Not only was this genocide, this was putting the sword into the hands of the people and saying, you do it. And so we see that the couriers went out hurriedly by the order of the king. And the decree was issued in, in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion, into distress. What do we see happening here? No one, no one can escape distress. A truth here that I want to point out, no matter your position, you cannot escape moments of distress. No matter your position. I want you to think about that for a moment. No matter whether you're rich or poor, young or old, foolish or wise, educated or uneducated, maybe in an honorable position or maybe not so honorable position, no one can escape moments of distress. Nobody. No matter your position, all face the distresses of living in a broken, fallen world and living with broken, sinful natures. Everybody on the planet Earth. Sort of the irony of what we see, if you even go back to chapter 3, verse 15, the king and Haman are sitting down to drink, sort of rejoicing in what's about to happen to them in a few chapters later. Meanwhile, the city is thrown into great confusion. There's natural disasters, uh, excuse me, uh, they're thrown into confusion because of what's going to happen with the king uh, and his order. You see, the Jews here have no idea what they're going to do. No idea. And what we see is this interesting sort of, uh, uh, if you will, contrast here. You have Mordecai and the Jews responding one way, and you have Esther responding a different way. But both, in their positions, face distress. You see, I want to pause for a minute and just let that sit with you. You see, all of us, no matter who you are, you're going to face natural disasters. You're going to face sickness, toothaches, injuries. Uh, we're all going to face the distress of, of national turmoil, of international turmoil. Uh, we're all going to face the distress of plague, disease. And all of us are going to face death. Ecclesiastes 9 verse 2 says, It is the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. No matter your position from the youngest child to the most mature adult, from the president of the United States to the packing plant operator, from the single mom trying to make it to the queen of England who has everything handed to her on a platter, everyone faces distress. And everyone has many reasons to be distressed. You can't escape it. 
but you can control how you respond to it. Let's see how the characters of our story respond to this terrible news. It's interesting, if you look at verses 1 to 4, we sort of see this, it's, it's almost laughable in one way. Mordecai and the Jews are weeping, and Esther goes shopping for clothes, right? She's got to find clothes in her closet to give to Mordecai. Mordecai learns, the Jews learn, and how do they respond? It says in verse 3, with fasting, with weeping, and with lamenting. This was the traditional way of expressing grief in ancient Near East culture. You would tear your clothes, you would put on sackcloth and ashes, and then you would cry out. Publicly, you would cry out. What's interesting to note here is that this phrase with fasting and weeping and lamenting is the exact same phrase in Hebrew as in Joel 2.12, which we read a little earlier in the service. There is an element of echo, if you will. The author of Esther is wanting to call our minds to an echo of Joel 2 to give us a reminder of what Joel is calling the people of God to. And we're going to look a little bit more of that. Ultimately, Joel is calling the people to repentance. Now, what do we see here? Mordecai and the Jews are weeping. They are fasting. They are mourning. And this fasting is literally fasting. They are not eating food. This is not sort of metaphoric like they fasted from Facebook for a day. No, they're fasting from food. And what do we see Esther doing? Verse 4, she learns that Mordecai is at the gate and she's distressed by his distress. She's distressed because it's unsightly. They they weren't even allowed to come into the king's gate. He he just sat at the entrance because it was was unsightly. Can you imagine? I mean, just try to get it in your mind. They're crying out. They're weeping. They've got... I mean, they look like they haven't bathed. They're just covered in ashes. They're, they're wearing sackcloth. It's unsightly. It's, it's ugly. They're ugly crying for sure. And Esther learns that Mordecai's ugly crying right outside the gate. And so what does she do? She sends him clothes. Take off the sackcloth, Mordecai. Put on these clothes. What I I want us to see here is this, that there is more than one way to respond to times like these. And you're in control. We control very, very little in this world, but you do control how you respond to times of distress. And you'll notice Mordecai and the Jews take the opportunity to repent. Mordecai even sees his position as Esther's cousin. An adoptive father as an opportunity to speak up. He goes to the king's gate knowing he will be uh, a scene. But what do we see about Esther? She doesn't seem to be distressed by Haman's edict of genocide because she doesn't know anything about it. Her distress has to do with seeing her cousin Mordecai upset. And she just wants to get rid of that. She doesn't even want to enter into the conversation initially and say, hey, why are you upset? She just says, hey, stop that. You know, you think of your, your child, maybe you have a teenager that comes crying to you, comes out, maybe they're out with their friends, they come home, they come crying to you, and they're so upset. And you have two options. One is to enter into the mess a little bit, like, oh, what's, what's wrong, honey? Why are you upset? 
Tell me about it. Connect with them, you know. The other option is just stop crying. Us dads probably would have that. Like, just stop. It's okay. Stop crying. What do you need? You want, you want me to take you for a Coke? You want a milkshake? Stop that. It's more what Esther does. You know, she just, come on, stop that. Stop the crying, Mordecai. Why does she respond so differently? It's interesting. Look to verses 5 to 11. We, we begin to see why she responded like this. She is so isolated, she has no idea what's going on around her. Verse 5, she calls for Hathak. He becomes sort of the, the runner, the communicator. He's like instant message. Can, I mean, the guy must have been in good shape. I mean, he just is running back and forth to her to the, to the gate. I mean, all, all, all day. So she sends him out. Hey, what's, find out what's going on. So he goes out, verse 6, he goes and he says, hey, Mordecai, what's happening? Esther wants to know. So Esther tells him, hey, Haman said he's going to pay the king 10,000 talents of silver. That's a lot of money. He is going to destroy the Jews. Mordecai gave Hathak a copy of the written decree showing their destruction. And he said to Hathak, this is verse 8, show it to Esther, explain it to her, and ask her, command her to go to the king and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. Use your position, Esther. So Hathak runs back now. Just, you know, he's going back. He tells Esther what happens. Esther finds out. Now think for a moment. You find this out. You just found out that your people are going to be completely destroyed. Completely destroyed in one day. Annihilated. Notice her response in verse 11. Her response is not weeping and fasting and lamenting. Her response is not, I cannot believe this. What can I do? Her response is not, this is terrible. Let us cry out to God. Her response is, will you know I mean, everybody knows this. All the king's servant, the people of the king's provinces, they know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called there, you'll be put to death unless the king holds out his golden scepter so that you can live. And I haven't even been to see the king in 30 days. I don't routinely see the king anymore. It's been 30 days. I'm not on the in circle anymore. I'm out. Why is Esther responding like this at this moment? I believe it's because of her isolation. And here's a truth that I want us to consider from this. Isolation leads to ignorance, and isolation leads to self-protection. Isolation leads to ignorance and self-protection. When we isolate from others, we grow ignorant of the needs of others. She had no idea what was going on because she was living in her own little world. She had no idea that her people were being about to be destroyed. She had no idea why Mordecai was upset. She had no idea that Haman had just ordered this genocide. She had no idea. She was entirely ignorant because she was isolated. She was apart. She was separated from her community. Why was she isolated? Because she chose to be that way. She hid her identity. 
And what does that lead to? In addition, the isolation now leads into this self-protection. Well, I've got to protect this safety. If I go to the king, I might get killed. I have a bubble of security. I got to protect my position. When I ask you for a moment before we go on, are you aware of the needs of others around you? Are you willing to risk a position of, of relative security and safety to perhaps do the right thing? Now the question might come into our mind, well, wait a minute, isn't it better to play it safe? I mean, it's, it's got to be better. It's got to be better to keep your head down, just keep quiet, just kind of ignore it. Even if you know what's going on, it, that's just a lot less uncomfortable. Well, let's consider the nature of, of your position. We look at verses 12 and 13 and 14 here, and here's how Mordecai responds. He hears, the thought comes back, tells him. So in verse 13, Mordecai responds, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And it's, it's interesting here that the commentators are a little mixed about what's going on. Is Mordecai giving some sort of a veiled threat because her identity's hidden? So is he saying, hey, if you don't do this, I might blow the whistle. He could be doing that. I don't personally think he's doing that. I think he loves her too much. I think he also has faith in God. And he trusts that no matter what happens, God's will will be done. What he's saying is, you are really a Jew, and even if you don't do this, you're, you're going to face destruction. Some way, somehow, it's going to get out that you're a Jew. And interestingly, he says, you and your father's house will perish. Her parents biologically had already died. Who was her adoptive father? Mordecai. He's speaking about himself, in my opinion. If you keep silent, there will be deliverance from somewhere. He trusts that. He trusts in the God who delivers. He trusts in the God of the Israelites. He trusts that. But he also knows that if she doesn't take this opportunity, she and him and all the other Jews will perish at this time. He challenges her to consider the purpose of her position, but he also makes known to her that her position is temporary. You're not going to live forever, Esther. You may be in this position of, of security and safety for now, but it won't last. It won't last. But you have an opportunity to make a difference. You see, there's this truth that we ought to consider here that your position in the world is temporary and yet purposeful. Your position in the world is fleeting and yet it is not without meaning. James 4 uses this language in James chapter 4, verse 14. Uh, he says, what's your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. 
Psalm 103 speaks about a man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower in the field and the wind passes over it and it's gone and its place knows it no more. Your position in this world is temporary, but don't miss that you also have purpose. Psalm 138 verse 8, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for you. God has a purpose for your life. Ecclesiastes 9, whatever your hands find to do, do it with your might because there's purpose. And so the wisdom of Moses in Psalm 90 is teach us to number our days so that we can get a heart of wisdom. Or to put that in the words of Ephesians 5, look how you walk. Walk as wise, not as unwise, making the most of the time. Your position in the world is temporary and yet purposeful. You see, Mordecai poses this question, and again, we have an echo to Joel 2. You see, in Joel 2, there's this call. If you want to turn over there for a moment, you can keep your finger there in Esther. And Joel 2, verse 12, which we read earlier, Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Here it is, the call to repentance. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Verse 14, who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him? Who knows When you repent, when you turn by faith to God, the merciful and gracious God, who knows what might happen? Sort of a rhetorical question that the answer is, yes, he will. And what do we find in Esther 4 in verse 14? And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. The same language The same call to live with purpose. You see, friends, your position in this world is temporary. It's fleeting. It's a mist. And yet, your life has meaning because you are made in God's image. And for those who follow Jesus, you have been given a call. A call to go. You see, since your position in this world is temporary and yet purposeful, we must ask this question, well, what do I do? Let's see what Esther did. Esther 4, look with me at uh, verse 15. She tells Hathak, go tell Mordecai, sends him back, his last errand so far. And she says, Go. Gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Now, interestingly, this, this phrase, if I perish, I perish in the Hebrew, it's, it's not so much that she is sort of saying this might be one possible outcome. She's actually saying it in the Hebrew construction. It's, she's resigning herself saying, I'm going to die. But you know what? That's okay. She has come to a place to accept the outcome, a possible outcome, and even accept what she thinks is going to happen because she knows that she has a purpose and she knows that she is to live in light of that right now 
in that moment. What does she do? Go back to Joel 2. I, I should keep, just keep your finger there. You can be back and forth. And you notice what she's doing. Joel 2 and verse 15. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Blow the trumpet among the people of God and what? Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. What is Esther doing? She is blowing the trumpet. You see, in light of your position, what should you do? Don't keep silent. Don't play it safe. No. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Return to the Lord. You see, in times like these, followers of Jesus are meant to live like every moment matters. We are meant to live like every moment matters. To live like every moment matters for the kingdom of God. To live for the glory of God and for the good of others. So what does this look like? What does this look like to not keep silent? Well, it's going to look a little different depending on your position. For all of us, I think it means first and foremost, return to the Lord. Turn to him with fasting and weeping and mourning. Blow the trumpet, if you will. Call those around you who are part of the family, the, the, the family of Christ, the church, to fast and weep and mourn. And I don't mean just metaphorically fast. I do believe we ought to call for fasting and weeping and mourning right now. Maybe consider between now and November 3rd that God might be calling us to fast and to pray, I'm not saying for the next 30 days, you can do that if you want, but I am saying at times, think about how that can be part of your life between now and November 3rd, or now and December 31st, or now and maybe till Christ comes back. How else do we live like every moment matters? I think we avoid isolating, we gather together as God's people. I know it's difficult right now. It's different right now, but we are to do that. Scripture is clear, so look for ways to do that, even if it's with your own family. I do believe on the Lord's Day we're called to do that, and we are trying our best to provide you opportunities to do that outdoors. Gather together with God's people. Don't isolate. When you isolate, you grow ignorant of others. You grow ignorant of their needs. You grow ignorant, and you protect yourself. When things start to threaten your bubble, you, you start to say, ah, get away. Followers of Jesus are called to step into the risk. You see this question, what is, you know, how do we define what is such a time as this? Friends, I got to tell you, every moment is such a time as this. If your mom changing dirty diapers, that's such a time as this. Live like that moment matters. If you're a dad and you need to correct your children, live like that moment matters for such a time as this. If you're working in, in the workplace and you have a couple choices to make, 
and you know one's the right choice and one's not, live like that moment matters for such a time as this to the glory of God and the good of others. You hear what's going on in our world and you're tempted to get on Facebook and post a few things, maybe, maybe inside a little bit of conversation. Live like that moment matters to the glory of God for such a time as this. And that might be the moment to keep silent, just saying. Maybe have the conversation in another way. You see, we're to live like every moment is an opportunity for the gospel. There is no moment where the gospel of grace cannot speak into it, cannot go through it, cannot live through that. There are no meaningless moments in this world. Everything happens for a reason and everyone has come into their position for such a time as this. You see, Jesus himself said, today is the day of salvation. It's interesting when he's coming in to Jerusalem in his triumphal entry and, and he's about to uh, be killed. And you may remember we do this at, right before Easter, all the palm, the kids with their palm, right? yay, Jesus, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed be the, the king. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Pharisees get upset with the people. And in Luke 19, Luke records and says, the, the Pharisees say to Jesus, tell them to stop doing this. They're, they're worshiping you. They're calling you the Messiah. That's blasphemous. And Jesus says this, very interesting. He says, I tell you, if these were silent, if they kept silent, the very stones would begin crying out. You see, friends, keeping silent in times like these is not an option. Because even the stones are crying out to our king, the greater mediator, the greater king, the true deliverer. You see, we ought to consider Jesus who was in a position in eternity in the, in the heavens ruling over everything and he took the position of a servant humbling himself. He didn't play it safe by staying in heaven protecting his rightful position. He gave it up. He risked his life for the sake of others. He didn't isolate from others and grow ignorant of their needs. Instead, he took on flesh he fully integrated into the community of humanity and was intimately aware of our needs. And he did not keep silent, but rather he proclaimed the goodness and glory of the kingdom of God. He proclaimed the good news. He proclaimed liberty to the captives. He proclaimed the year of the Lord's favor. And then he willingly and joyfully, not without coercion by his father, who's convinced him, hey, you should go do this. No, willingly and joyfully, we're told in Hebrews, did he go to the cross and perish and suffer the wrath and curse of God so that others might escape judgment, so that relief and deliverance could be brought to the people of God for such a time as this. He lived like every moment mattered, so that those who follow Jesus can live like every moment matters with purpose to the glory of God and for the good of others for such a time as this. Would you pray with me? Father, we, oh, we are thankful for Christ who not only set an example, but through him by his life and death and resurrection, Lord, we are enabled
to live. And so God, we pray, would you help us to live like this moment right now matters for this time. We love you, oh God, and we praise you. We pray in Jesus' name.